the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to a brand new week on the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart and mind, maybe something going on in your life. We'll do the best we can to give you the direction that the Word of God would would provide. 340-9585 is the number for your local calls. 340-9585. Somebody told me this weekend I need to start saying 210 because now you have to have the area code. So it's 210-340-9585. If I have to do any more numbers, it's going to take the whole program just to get the phone numbers. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is by using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button at the top of the phone, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. I hope you had a great day in church yesterday. We did. Uh, got to start a brand new book with Luke. I actually have a couple of questions that have been sent in, and I know these aren't people that go to our church, so people are watching online. God bless you guys for that. Thank you. Um, we started in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, next week we talk about Mary um, at the beginning. Because it's Monday, tonight we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies uh, tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, Pastor Ken will be teaching the men, and he told me this morning that he's gotten to the, the, the rapture of the church in First Thessalonians, so we're going to be uh, discussing that tonight. Uh, our lady study, Lachelle Ortiz, is going to be teaching the ladies. Our youth studies, Pastor Nelly, the high school age youth, and Chris Sanchez, our junior high leader, will be teaching the junior high school age kids. Um, great opportunity for the family to come together for a night, worshiping together, and then breaking up into Bible studies. Great way to spend the evening. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let me get to the two questions that we have first. Uh, from um, yesterday's message, our email inbox. This one is from Scott. He said, Pastor Ron, in your sermon yesterday, was Gabriel's actions in Luke chapter 120 in muting Zechariah, was that something he had the authority to do himself, or was that direct interaction by God? Can angels affect us physically on their own accord? Um, Scott, there's no way to know beyond any doubt um, what the answer to the question is, but but here's what I know about good angels. I can say this uh, with Gabriel's uh, example for sure. Uh, Gabriel would never have acted except at the authority of God. So this is something that that he did, uh, given instructions, and uh, it would have been instructions from uh, from the Lord, of course. Now. Uh, I, I, the reason I separate the good angels from the bad angels is we know that demons have power. Just like Gabriel has supernatural power, so too does uh, the, the fallen angels or demons. 
uh, Satan, of course. But what we don't know for sure is just how much they can affect us. Now, here's what I think is true. And here's what I think from my own experience, Scott. Uh, I, first of all, we know that angels cannot do anything without the permission of God. Uh, angels can afflict. We know that Paul was was afflicted by a messenger from Satan with his famous thorn in the flesh. It was a physical affliction. Whatever it was, we don't know, but it was physical. And Paul was in so much pain, he pleaded with the Lord. Uh, so we know that, that God permitted Satan to do that. And we know that God permitted Job to be afflicted physically. Um, that, too, was the work of the devil. Now, what, what we don't know for sure is that... Um, absent the, the permission from God, could angels or demons uh, affect us? And, and I believe with all of my heart the answer is no, apart from the permission or the express permission of God. Now, having said that, I also want to say from my own experience, uh, Satan is so powerful that there are times when he has afflicted me and other people that I know. Now, I don't believe that he had permission from God, and by that I'm not important enough to be on his radar in that sense. I'm not the Apostle Paul. I'm certainly not Job. Um, but here's what I found out in my own experience. Um, Satan was able to recreate pain. And we know that Satan can influence our minds and our thoughts. He can implant uh, ideas. Uh, and, and I also believe that, that based on my own experience only, and this is just one person talking, um, I, I would say for many, many years, uh, I suffered from migraines. I've got them under control now because they're largely caused by chemical reactions to uh, food, uh, certain foods and preservatives, especially for me. Um, and um, um, he would afflict me with migraines. Now, my theology at the time was, well, he can't do that without God's permission. But but I think there's something that he can do in the, in the brain to recreate pain. And here's how I came to that conclusion. Uh, one evening I was going to minister. I can't exactly remember where now, but but uh, it was a, a big event. And uh, I was going to go. It didn't matter how terrible I felt. Uh, I just knew that I had to go. And I, I remember taking a little short walk with the Lord to prepare for the ministry that was coming up. And I just said, Lord, you know how badly I feel. You know the strength that I need to do this. Um so I need you to uphold me. I need you to sustain me and empower me to be able to do this. And um, I made the decision. I'm going no matter what, so please help. And instantly, the headache left. Instantly. And I don't believe I was healed from the migraine. Uh, I just think that, that I took a stand against Satan. He tried to stop me from doing the ministry. When he realized he wasn't going to be able to do it, then that, that was gone. So it sure felt like a real migraine, um, but I've never had a migraine that went away like that with no side effects, and I've prayed when I get all of them. So uh, it's just one of those things that we don't know for sure, but Scott, I'm fairly confident in that. Gabriel, in, your, in, in the case of your question, Gabriel, uh, a servant of God, a, an angel who stands in the presence of God, um, he would have had instructions from uh, from the Father to do that exact thing. So uh, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585, here is a question. I'll break up the other two questions. This one's from Cindy, just came into the studio. When Lucifer was thrown out of heaven, did he lose all of his beauty? Wasn't he created as very beautiful? Uh, Ezekiel 28 talks about how he was created, Cindy. I think that's a great question that I've actually never considered. Um, um, he was the most beautiful, apparently, of all of God's angels. Now, if you've listened to the show, Cindy, for a length of time, you know that I personally think that his fall from heaven, and there's no biblical account of the, the Satan's fall from heaven or the, the, the one-third of the angels who would become demons. But I personally believe that when on the sixth day God created man and said that this is the best thing I've ever done, I think that's what kind of stimulated Satan's jealousy and... You know, we know the, the I wills, I will cast my throne above the most high. He wanted to be worshipped rather than a worshiper. Uh, and he deceived, we know, a third of the angels. I believe, this is my own opinion, that, that that's when it happened after uh, the creation of Adam on the sixth day. Now, having said that, 
Um, I don't know if he lost his beauty. Um, I can safely say that the serpent that he inhabited was the most beautiful, probably, of all creatures. I just know that that's what Satan would have done. It's also why, as a result of the curse, the serpent was then forced to crawl on his belly. So, um, yeah, I I would imagine that outside of the presence of God, uh, he lost uh, his beauty. Uh, Sin is ugly, um, especially the sins that he's guilty of. Uh, Anger is ugly. So uh, that would be my guess, Cindy, but nobody knows for sure. Uh, All I know is that if we were able to see him... um, in his supernatural form, like all of the other angels, we would be absolutely terrified. Uh, and I personally don't think now that he would be uh, beautiful. Again, I don't know the answer for sure, but that's a great question to think about. And I like the way your mind works, Cindy. So that's the best I can do. He was created as the best of the best. The best of the best. Here is the other question about yesterday's message from our email inbox. This is from AA. Pastor Ron, in your Luke Bible study yesterday, the scripture differentiated between wine and fermented drink. That description of John the Baptist tells me that he used no substance that would alter his thinking. I recently heard J. Vernon McGee answer a question from a listener who wanted to know if the water that Jesus turned into wine contained alcohol. His answer was no. He said it was the best grape juice ever produced, non-alcoholic. Once and for all, can you definitely say that wine made 2,000 years ago did or did not contain alcohol? AA. AA, I'm not a fermentation or a a wine specialist, so uh, the, the whole process... Um, is is sort of out of my area of expertise for sure. Uh, I am shocked, however, that J. Vernon McGee would answer that question, no, that it wasn't alcoholic, uh, because I think the scripture is really clear that it was alcoholic. Uh, we know that people got drunk at these wine festivals. We know that uh, Paul said uh, uh, to, to be not drunk with wine. Uh, so wine, by definition, fermentation, by definition, produces a- an alcoholic content that affects or influences uh, the way we think and the way we behave. Um, things were different in Jesus's day. Um, wine was a staple. Water wasn't as plentiful, nor was it as healthy as it is now uh, in the ancient world. And so wine would be served at meals. Wine would certainly be served at the Passovers. Um, Jesus at the Last Supper would have would have had alcoholic wine. But at the wedding in Cana, uh, it's a festival. And, and in, in a feast like that, there would have been alcoholic wine. So I am really, really, really convinced that it was alcoholic that it was the best wine that's ever been created. When they taste it, they said, oh, you, unlike the others, have saved the best for last. Uh, and and that would have had alcohol uh, in, in content. So I'm shocked that J. Vernon McGee would say uh, it was not alcoholic. Uh, I can say with confidence that the alcohol that was created or, or made in the ancient world wasn't nearly as potent or with as much alcohol content as the alcohol that we know today. Um, but we know it caused people to get drunk. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to tell them, do not be drunk with wine. So, A, that's the best I can do. Um, you know, fermented drinks are alcoholic by definition. I've I've um, had people tasting spiked apple juice and, and um, um, you know, other kinds of things. So um, that's the best I can do. But But I'm personally completely confident that it was, in fact, uh, alcoholic in its content, and it could and does affect the other things. Now, John the Baptist, uh, his abstention from alcohol was a result of a vow, an Azurite vow. So John the Baptist uh, wouldn't have been concerned about alcohol content or wouldn't have been concerned about thinking clearly at all. Um, It was just something that, that from birth he was forbidden to do, and John the Baptist, of course, um, filled with the Spirit from birth, uh, was certainly one of those who would have been obedient to the Lord. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Greg. He says, "I know you believe everything was created in six literal days, 
But how do we know the day in the Bible couldn't have referred to a longer period of time? Does it have to mean a 24-hour day? Uh, Greg, for it to mean anything other than a 24-hour day requires um, um, language gymnastics. The Hebrew word is yom, and it's never used in literature anywhere in any other way than to describe a literal 24-hour day. So to, to believe that this was a day could be a thousand years, a thousand years could be a day, I've heard all kinds of silliness. Why is it so difficult for us to just take the Bible for what it clearly says? Over and over in the Genesis account, it says the evening and the morning, the first day, the evening and the morning, the second day. I mean, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit is going out of his way to, to help us understand that God created everything that is in a literal 24-hour, six-day period of time. So to stretch it out, and I know why people do it, Greg. They do it because um, they're trying to accommodate some sort of evolution in the process, or they will um, uh, listen to somebody who's, who's, who's got carbon dating uh, information, say, well, no, carbon dating has proved that the world is this old or this thing that was found is this many thousands or tens of thousands of years old. Um, the carbon dating process um, is not as reliable as we'd want it to be. Uh, we don't know what God made things or how he made them, how old he made them look. But here's what we know. We know that in six days he created all things and rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was done. So to come up with any other theory, uh, there's no evidence whatsoever biblically. Uh, and I don't think we who are Christians have to accommodate science. I also personally don't think that science and scripture are at odds. The Bible is not a science book, but here's what we have to understand. Whenever it does comment on that which is science-related, it does so with perfect accuracy. So why is it so hard to believe that God said he did it in six days, literal 24-hour days? Why is it so hard to believe? And then we've got one more choice to make. Who are we going to believe? Greg, I answer this question or similar questions the same way all the time, and I want to be sure to do it once more with your question. Science that contradicts what the Word of God says is inaccurate science. Science is the observation of something. But nobody was there to observe the beginning. Only God was. And we know he's given us his word. And from the very beginning of time, scientists, really smart people, have been trying to convince us that there is no God. Why would we listen to anything or anyone that starts with the premise that there is no God? Or to someone who's anti-God? Instead of just the first four words of our Bible say, in the beginning, God. And so, you're right, I believe, with every fiber of my being in a literal 24-hour, six-day creation. But the question ought to be asked of others, what makes them think that a 24-hour day could be something else? It could mean more than just a 24-hour day. Greg, I hope that helps a little bit. Here is a question from Jennifer. She says, can you talk about the timing of the rapture, the great tribulation, and Jesus' return? Uh, I can, Jennifer, and I think Pastor Ken's going to do that tonight as he talks about the rapture of the church as well. Um, the, the three things that you described, the, the study of eschatology, the study of the end times, those are the three major things on the prophetic calendar. The first thing that's going to happen is the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment. Uh, when it does happen, it will happen suddenly. And when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, it would be better to translate that word into English, I'm coming suddenly. Uh, Paul says, in a flash, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye. 
however fast that is, it's going to be that sudden. Now, obviously, it's not going to be quick because we've been waiting 2,000 years or nearly 2,000 years for the rapture of the church. Uh, in the first century church, they got tired of waiting, and, and there was all kinds of people that would come along and attack the idea of the rapture. They're still doing it nearly 2,000 years later. Oh, you Christians, you keep saying that Jesus is coming. It could come at any time. But we're still here. Well, the truth is that he's patient. He, he explains his patience. He's unwilling that any should perish, according to Peter's epistle. So we should be glad. You know, I've said on this program before, I got saved in 1991. But there's a whole bunch of people that are now my friends, pastors of churches, who were praying that Jesus would come before 1991. There was a book written, um, you know, how Lindsay started sort of the rapture fever with a, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, a, a multi, multi-million dollar or million bookseller um, back in a time when that just didn't happen, especially with religious books. Um, and everybody was waiting for Jesus at any moment. There was a book in 1988 written that was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. Well, obviously that didn't happen, and a lot of people grew weary of waiting, and their lives began to sort of produce less fruit. So it's not a matter of, Jesus, you got to come, but we want him to come. We know it could happen any moment, but we're also focused on occupying here in case he doesn't. What if Jesus takes another thousand years? Certainly we won't be alive, nobody listening to this program. So if he takes another thousand years, what are we to do in the time that we have left? Well, we're to make the most of every opportunity. Paul says, redeem the time. And the way we do that is to serve Jesus with all of our heart, offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And as we do that, God uses us to save other people. Now, we know, Jennifer, that there's a finite number of Gentiles who are going to be saved. And when that last Gentile is saved, the rapture of the church is going to happen, and then Jesus is going to turn his focus once again on his people Israel, the Jews. So the rapture is going to happen first. At that point, the Great Tribulation is going to break out. It's a time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress, we're told in the, in the um, uh, Old Testament, a time that is worse than any other time in the history of the world. And uh, it's going to be a period of time, seven years. For the first three and a half years, uh, there will still be um, great calamity uh, but for the most part, it'll be a time where there's still hope for peace and safety. And then the man that we call the Antichrist is going to insist that he be worshipped. Jews won't do that, and and he's going to then um, persecute them and, and plunge the world into the second half of the Great Tribulation, which is going to be catastrophic beyond anything that I can describe. It's going to last for seven years and in that time, Jesus is going to deal with a Christ-rejecting world. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and they're going to, 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 to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And there's going to be the greatest revival in the history of the world, first in Israel, but also the rest of the world, while the Antichrist is trying to wreak havoc. After that, Jennifer, after the seven years... Revelation chapter 19, you can read about it. Jesus is going to return. We're going to be with him. His reward, that's you and I, his inheritance. We're going to be with him, and he's going to destroy his enemies with a word. It's going to be that quick. On his robe and on his thigh, it'll be written, King of kings and Lord of lords. His robe will be drenched in the blood of those who opposed him. And after he returns then he's going to set up his kingdom on this earth. It'll be a restored earth, not a completely new earth, but for a thousand years, Jesus will rule and reign from the very throne of David that he was promised. So that's what's going to happen, the order that it's going to happen in, and all of those things. Um, one, we should be glad we're not in the Great Tribulation. We won't be. Jesus' return will be with him. 
But the rapture of the church, we will hear from him, and we will be caught up in the air to be where he is. One other thing, Jennifer, uh, when Jesus returns, he's going to return on the Mount of Olives. Uh, But in the rapture of the church, uh, Jesus isn't coming to earth. He's coming to catch us up to be with him where he is. That means we'll meet him in the air. We'll be taken to heaven. That's going to start uh, the tribulation here on earth. But for you and for me, Jennifer, it's going to start the wedding banquet of the Lamb. That's when you and I will be married to Jesus. Talk about a feast. Boy, that will be great. So, Jennifer, I hope that answers your questions. Phone's been quiet today, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, You can call toll-free at 877-630-5757. We've got less than a minute. Let me have a quick question. Uh, Anne wants to know, would you permit a woman guest speaker to preach at your church? Uh, Anne, I don't think I would, no. Um, uh, I would not on a Sunday for sure. Um, We have had guests here, and I'm certainly not opposed to a godly woman uh, speaking, but but not as a Bible teacher, not in front of men. We've had many women preach to our women's groups or women's retreats. But the job of preaching, the role of a pastor is male. Um, Pretty much on Sundays, I'm going to be the one doing it with my Bible open. So I hope that answers your question. We got 30 minutes left on this Monday program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. You're listening to the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the Monday program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I said the phones have been quiet, so we'd love your calls. You're more interesting than I am. And I, I, I really felt bad when I went off for the break. Uh, I should never have a uh, take a question like yours with just one minute. Uh, so uh, let me just spend another couple of minutes uh, sharing my heart on, on this. I want you to know that there is no way that I think that a woman couldn't preach at least as well or better than I can. This isn't about qualifications. Uh, it's not about who's smarter, who's more spiritual. Uh, it's simply that the church belongs to Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the one who uh, makes the rules. If he's the head of the church and he makes the rules, those of us who are not the head of the church, we call ourselves Christians, we need to uh, follow his rules. It's that simple. He doesn't have to ask you or me um, if we agree. He just says, um, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church, Period. Uh, and and the, the clarity and the, the hermeneutic there is is so solid um, that that only someone who really wants to rebel against God's direction uh, would confuse it. Again, I, I we have women teachers here at Calvary Chapel, several of them. Um, um, Doctor Sheba is uh, such a gifted teacher, and 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 we have many others. Um, and and I, I, they could do at least as well as I could do, if not better. Uh, this is just a matter of being obedience. Now, there might be an exception or two, but it would never be in the case of a, let's open a Bible and go verse by verse through the Bible setting. Uh, I would probably let Johnny Erickson Tata uh, talk to my church on a Sunday. Um, I would introduce her. She doesn't really need an introduction, but um, she is a servant of the Lord. She's not coming trying to usurp my authority. Uh, but her message is so rich, and there's so much value in the things that she's learned through her experiences um, being quadriplegic. Um, um, her ministry has borne fruit all over the world. Uh, the late Elizabeth Elliot is another one who uh, I probably would have let come in and speak to my church about her experiences. So there's a difference, at least in my view, uh, a woman giving a testimony 
uh, as opposed to a woman coming in and teaching the word. Um, the truth is, I never have guest speakers here unless it's somebody who's taught at one of our retreats. I pretty much like my job. <laughs> and so on Sundays, I want to do it. Uh, the other issue for me is I have a whole bunch of pastors who are wonderfully gifted teachers. And if I wasn't going to teach for some reason, um, I've got a whole bunch of people right here that I know already love my people and and love me. Uh, and uh, people that I know I can entrust uh, the people I care so deeply about to without any uh, qualms at all. So we're not big on guest speakers or guest worshipers or anything like that. We like to use the body that the Lord has provided. So, and I hope that makes a little bit more sense and is uh, a little bit more informative. Uh, Leslie wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, why do you think people refuse to believe in Jesus? Leslie, I could answer that two ways. My first response would be, I don't know. How could anybody not believe in Jesus? The evidence is overwhelming. He really lived. He was a real person. He really was murdered. The evidence is incontrovertible. And he really didn't stay dead. He came to life. And the evidence is equally overwhelming for the fact of his resurrection from the dead. Now, all of those things combined indicate that Jesus is who he said he was. He said he was God in human flesh. He said he was the only way to God in heaven. He said he was the only way to forgive our sins. Uh, so I don't know why anybody wants, doesn't believe unless they don't want to believe. But that leads to the second part, part of my answer. And that is simply that people like to sin. And Leslie, you know, people can make all kinds of excuses. Well, you know, there's just not enough evidence. Or they can say, well, well, if the God is a God of love, how could he send people? They can have all kinds of excuses. But if they were brutally honest with themselves, the only answer they would have that made any sense at all would, I don't want to stop sinning. And so they refuse to believe. It's not that they can't believe, but I like your word refuse. It's that they will not believe. The facts don't matter to them. What they care about, the only thing they care about is being able to sin. So that's the answer. That's why people don't believe. And that's what I always tell somebody when they, well, I know what you're saying is true, but I respond with, you're not ready to stop sinning. And when they're honest, and some are, and I appreciate it when they are, they will acknowledge you're right. I'm not ready to give that up yet. Here's a question from Matthew. I know we don't need to do anything to get saved, so why do we have to do things after we get saved? Now, Matthew, I, I'm guessing that what you mean is if all we have to do is believe and we're saved and we're, we've got our ticket punched to heaven, why do we have to go to church or why do we have to um, refrain from sex or fun you know, well, because the answer is we do things, not because we have to, but because if you're really saved, you want to. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And when somebody is unwilling to obey God, they don't love him. And, you know, they're not saved by simply saying, well, Jesus is Lord or, oh, I believe I went to an altar call or I got baptized. So, um The best way I can describe it, Matthew, is that living a Christian life, a life that's designed, designed to please God, is a get-to, not a have-to. And I guess you have to be saved to understand that. I don't get up in the morning and refuse to give in to my flesh or temptation because... Well, I have to because I'm saved. I, I do it because I want to be with Jesus. And when we sin, by definition, we've excluded Jesus from our lives, especially when that sin is rebellious uh, and willful. What we do is we get up and we want to be where he is. We want to talk to him. We want to be with him. We want to learn about him. We want to be more like him. That's why Jesus said in his model for prayer, one of the things we should pray is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
that means is if we're following Jesus, we're going in the opposite direction of temptation, Matthew. And we won't sin. Now, as far as going to church or being baptized, whatever the other things that you might have on your mind and heart, is it true that if you really love somebody, you want to please them and be pleasing to them? So we do those things that please our Lord. We don't do things because we have to. We do things simply because we get to, we can. So if if I miss the sense of your question, Matthew, I'm sorry. Would you please maybe um, re- rephrase it and let me know uh, if I missed the point. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our mobile app uh, from Richard. If we grieve the Spirit, are we doing that to the Spirit only, or is it to Jesus and God as well? Um, Richard, when we're grieving the Spirit, we're grieving Jesus who sent the Spirit to us, and we're grieving the Father who sent Jesus to us. So uh, they're one. There's no division in the unity. Uh, Quenching the Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit is simply uh, rebelling against that which God intends for our good. You know, if God says, be not drunk with wine or be drunk with anything else, um, if we disobey, then we're grieving the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're grieving his mission. So we're, we're grieving all three members of the Godhead, all three persons of our one God, and uh, they are in perfect agreement and perfect unity in the process. Let's take our first phone call today. Daniel on line one from San Antonio. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I was going to ask you, just because you were talking about, uh, somebody was asking about, you know, and I know I've asked you this before, like on people believing, but, and being saved, but I, you know, there's a, a part of me, like, you know, sometimes I read in the Bible where it says that uh, people were, I guess I guess it falls along the lines of predestination, mm-hmm. you know, because I in just in my own life, you know, sometimes I I think to myself, you know, like I say, Lord, you know, how did you had mercy on me? And I, you know, before I didn't believe in, you know, I, uh, all my previous thoughts about Christianity in general, you know, and uh, and versus now and then i see other people and uh that don't believe and i remember when i was once there and i you know i i just there's a part of me that you know sometimes i just wonder like you know is it that it almost sometimes in some references when you're reading the bible it just seems as though some people were they were destined. I, I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but maybe, yeah. you know, as the Bible says, they went from out mm-hmm. from us because they were never from us. Or, you know, like they didn't belong to us. I think John says that. First yeah. John so 2.19. I just wonder, like, yeah, so like sometimes I just, you know, I struggle with that, you know, and I think, like, Lord, you know, what, what you know, they're hearing the same message that I heard and, or I don't know if they heard it in the same way, but you know, it just, yeah. it just makes you think like, yeah, because I'm thinking about answer. Paul the apostle, you know, uh-huh. how the Lord appeared to him and, you know, he didn't believe what the Lord appeared to him and, you know, he was blinded, you know, but I don't know what are your, what are your thoughts on that? And I'll take your, yep. thank you, Daniel. The radio. Thank you. Thoughtful question, as always. A couple of things. You know, one of the things that we have to do is get the idea out of our head that that predestination or election is caused by God. Um, You know, God appeared to Saul of Tarsus. Jesus did. Because he knew Saul of Tarsus would obey. We know that Saul was running away from from the Lord. It's hard to kick against the goads, is what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus. But Jesus kept chasing him. Now, Daniel, I don't know your story, uh, but it's probably very similar to mine. I was the biggest jerk in the whole world before I got saved, and I was running as fast as I could to get away from God, and he kept chasing me. 
Why would he keep chasing me? Well, the Bible says that he has mercy on those he will have mercy, on whom he'll have mercy, and he hardens those that he hardens. That doesn't mean he does it arbitrarily. The basis upon his choice of being merciful is he knew that I was going to become a believer. And Daniel, he knew that you were going to become a believer. Jesus said, Father, I've lost none that you've given me. He didn't lose you, and he didn't lose me either. So here's what we have to understand. God chases everyone. He knows those of us who are going to respond, and he knows those of us who are not going to respond. He doesn't cause them not to respond. And here's something you said. You said, they hear the same message. Well, they don't hear the same message. You know, it's a, an interesting phenomenon. In church, every Sunday, uh, as I look out over the, the, the congregation in our three services on Sunday, um, I can see people squirming. I know God's speaking to their heart. There's times when I'm teaching and the Holy Spirit has given me really specific information about things or, 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 or sort of directing my words a little bit to, to minister to a certain person or, or people. Uh, and some of those people respond and some don't. Yesterday I gave uh, an invitation at all three services, as I always do. And um, a few people come up, and yet God is telling me I'm still speaking to others. Why is he still speaking? Because they haven't heard yet. So they're not hearing the same message. They're hearing the same words. But 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 a heart has to be prepared. And the Holy Spirit is the preparer of the heart. And Daniel, your heart was ready, and at just the right time, the message was presented in such a way that you responded, and God always knew you were going to do that. That same message is given to everybody, but until a heart is prepared by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit waits for permission as as God is moving on our heart and convicting us, we have to make the choice of our own free will. So predestination isn't causative. God isn't saying, okay, I'm going to make Daniel believe. I'm going to make Ron believe. He just knew we were going to. Very important question, Daniel. Thank you very much. Let's go to Converse, Texas now and talk with Jesse online too. Jesse, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, uh, Pastor Ron. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jesse. Listen, I just had a a quick question here. I recently finished reading the uh, book Book of Judges. And I had a question concerning, I believe the name is um, Jephthah, uh-huh. and I read um, where he had made a vow to, to God if uh, he helped them, I think, def- defeat the, the uh, Ammonites. Um, mm-hmm. he, he, he said something along the lines that when he came home in victory that the first person to, to come out of his tent that he would uh, sacrifice as a burnt offering. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the word said that uh, it was his daughter who had walked out. And, um, you know, uh, from what I understand, he did, he, did, he did just that. You know, he sacrificed her as a, as a burnt offering. Is, is that correct? Uh, and, and my question is just, I don't know if you can kind of elaborate on that. I mean, I don't know if that's, yeah. you know, it's surprising I, to me when I, when I read that. So uh, if you could yeah. just give me a little bit more insight. Uh, I can, I, Jesse. I can Thank up, you. And I'll listen to you, sir. Thank you, Jesse. God bless you. Uh, uh, surprising, I don't think, is, is, I think that's an understatement. Most people, and it certainly was that for me, when I read Jephthah, it was shocking. Absolutely shocking. How could these things be? Now, two things. One, um, he didn't say the first person who comes out of my house I will sacrifice to you. He said the first thing that comes out of my house. The first thing I see, I will make that as an offering, a burnt offering. Now, the, the, the importance Jesse of the burnt offering is it's an offering that's completely consumed by fire and of course God wants all of us to be completely consumed by the fire of his Holy Spirit for sure Um, however Jephthah the time of the judges was a time that the whole book is characterized by the same theme it was a time when men did what seemed right to them and while Jephthah was a judge a deliverer he wasn't a particularly spiritual man that's not the idea there weren't very many spiritual men in the book of Judges. What it means is that he was empowered by God to deliver God's people Israel. So we had this battle to go to with the promise of victory. I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes uh, out of my house, the first thing that I see. It's very clear, Jesse, that when it was his daughter, he was stricken. He was overwhelmed with sadness and grief. Now, did he kill her? Uh, I think... The answer is 
at least it should be equally clear to everybody, that the answer is no. She went away with her friends for a time to grieve, to mourn, that she would never be like other women. And I think the whole idea of the, the burnt offering is she came back, she told her father, she understood the relationship between her father and God. If you said you're going to do it, you got to do it. But it wasn't a sacrifice of her life. It was a sacrifice of her future. She was putting her future in God's hands. She would never marry. She would never have children. Um, and so she was committed to uh, a complete and total sacrifice of her living life to the Lord. And that's the way she lived the rest of her life. And I think if you read the context very clear, we automatically assume our mind does that it was a, a sacrifice that she was killed and then burned on the altar. Uh, but if you read closely, I think uh, what she sacrificed was her hopes, her dreams, her future. Uh, she pretty much gave her life in service to God. So I hope that helps. It's Judges chapter 11, by the way, beginning in verse 30. We had a call from Steve. Huh? Steve, if you have time, you can call back. We've got nobody else on the line, Steve, from Cedar Park. Here is a question, anonymous, that I can't answer. <laughs> How can I be certain that it is God's voice I'm hearing and not just my own or the devil? Uh, anonymous, the only way that you can be certain that it's the voice of God is if it is consistent with the Word of God. You know, I think sometimes we're afraid that um, I'm asking God for something and He tells me what I want to hear. Well, how do I know it's not my voice? I think we've got to learn to expect that God wants to bless us. Uh, and what we have to be willing to do is say, when we pray, say, Lord, Thy will, not my will, be done. But if you're willing to offer yourself not Jeff Todd's daughter, but you, if you're willing to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, according to Romans chapter 12, then the Holy Spirit's going to speak to your heart. You know it's going to be God's voice. Uh, the enemy is going to lie to you. And the, he's going to sound very convincing. He's, he wants to destroy you. So for me, at least, it's pretty easy to determine the voice of the enemy. The thing I have a hard time with, Anonymous, is what you point out. God's voice or my own voice. I really want to to be in the will of God. And there's a lot of spirits out there shouting at us. First John 4, 1 says, Brothers, test the spirits, because not every spirit is from God. And so the spirits who are trying to confuse us are difficult. So the best way, as certain as you can be, is know your Bible. God will not say anything to your voice that he won't say in his word. Nothing that he will say to your heart is going to be inconsistent or in contradiction to what he has as in word. So thank you for that. Um, here's one of my favorite callers, Ola on line one. Ola, thanks for calling. You're on the air. <laughs> Hello, Pastor Ron. <laughs> How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> I just leave you working out just right on time <laughs> to catch sure. the the last part of the show. <laughs> Ola, how's your pre how's your pregnancy doing? Let me, let me ask you before you start. I have a question for you. Well. <laughs> how good? That's what I want to know. Oh, it's going well. Praise God. Good. Praise God. Thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, I have a question, sir. Um, a pastor recently said that if you don't pay tithe, that you're going to go to hell. Um, of course, one of the reasons why I'm, I, I'm, ask, I'm asking this question is, one, for me, because I, I don't pay like every month. Sometimes I have to, you know, put money here to catch up on some things. And then I was wondering about the poor people that can't really afford to pay that, you know, tithe after, you know, paying for their land or for food. Uh, it just got me a little concerned, like, what, what can one do in that case? Yeah. I can help, Ola, and, and uh, thank you for calling, so I appreciate it. And please know that I'm praying for you every day and for your baby. Uh, thank you for sending the, the text with the picture of your EPT test to Paula. She's rejoicing. I know she's smiling really big right now, but you're never out of our prayers, so thank you very much. Um, Ola, the, the pastor who would say that to you is a wolf uh, in sheep's clothing, uh, he's not somebody to be listened to or somebody to be trusted. Um, his or her heart is not right. 
and so ignore it. Don't worry about it. Um, a New Testament principle for tithing is giving from a cheerful heart, not under compulsion, not reluctantly, not after being pressured to give. Uh, and and it, it mortifies me, Ola, that, that there are people who are misrepresenting God from a pulpit uh, because they have so little faith in God themselves. I'm going to pry money from Ola so that I don't have to trust God, but I'm going to tell her to trust God. So you give what you can give, and you give with a cheerful heart, and your offering is accepted in heaven. Um, just prayerfully consider, again, being generous, especially generosity to God's house is something that that we all ought to be eager to do. Um, but you let this be an issue between you and the Lord. Our announcer says every Sunday, ask the Lord what to give. He'll speak to your heart when he does. Do what he tells you to do. But uh, he understands when you're short. He understands when things are tough. Um, The poor woman that Jesus acknowledged gave what we would call two pennies. And Jesus said she gave everything. So she gave more than anybody else, even though people gave larger amounts of money. So the pastor that would tell you that tithing is necessary, that's wrong. But the pastor that would tell you that you're not going to go to heaven if you don't tithe is a wolf, a false teacher, and a liar. So please, please, please don't let that influence you one little bit. Just by way of quick explanation to the radio audience, Ola is a radio listener who's been listening a long time, and when she heard one day that I was praying for uh, women in our church who couldn't have babies, she called and said, would you put me on that prayer list? Um, After years of praying for her, we got that announcement that she was pregnant, and Ola, we're thrilled, so keep us posted. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in today. Remember, Bible studies, men's, women's, and youth studies tonight here at Calvary Chapel, calvaryessay.com for the ladies. We'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.